Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. The scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, <clears throat> and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. Uh, we've been thinking for the past several weeks about beauty, uh, and the premise of this little sermon series is this, that so often God's kingdom teaches and urges us to pursue values that are different from the values of the world around us. And so while the world around us really values utility and efficiency and usefulness, and we assign value based on how useful something is or how efficient something is, God seems to measure things by a different standard, and his standard has more to do with beauty. Now, very often, things that are beautiful are less efficient and are less, objectively speaking, useful even, and yet those are the things that matter deeply to God. This morning, uh, we're going to think about the beauty of a worship service, of the regular weekly gathering, what we call going to church. And I'm even sensitive that there's a little bit of a weird dynamic here, and this happens every time I, I mention this, because I'm basically preaching a sermon about the beauty of going to church to a bunch of people who are already convinced enough about the beauty of going to church that you went to church. Uh, this is, in some ways, it might feel redundant, but I'm not actually trying to make the case that you should do this. Um, I'm, far be it for me to say, in, in some sense, what you should do or not. I want to paint a picture this morning of the beauty of what actually happens here. And so even if you've been coming to church for years or for decades, maybe you'll start to, to see and appreciate even more what God does and how the Holy Spirit moves through this regular, very ordinary, in some ways very pedestrian gathering of a bunch of ordinary people to move us in extraordinary ways. Uh, just this week, a friend of mine sent me some statistics about uh, church attendance since the COVID pandemic started that really caught me off guard, and I think they'll probably catch you off guard as well. This is from the Barna Group. They track religious activity in America. They're one of the, like, the top two or three uh, polling organizations that deal specifically with religious habits of America. Listen to this. Since 2020, so since the pandemic started, baby boomers... They, uh, and this, this study tracked baby boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials. Since 2020, baby boomers have become the least likely generation to return to church. 
and millennials have become the most likely generation to return to church. Does that seem backwards from what you expected? In the same study, they point out some separate data that's it's related, but it's a little bit different. That as of 10 years ago, so 10 years ago, baby boomers went to church at a higher rate than Gen Xers, and Gen Xers went to church at a higher rate than millennials. Well, now that's been flipped. And as of 2022, 25% of baby boomers attend church weekly, 31% of Gen Xers attend church weekly, and 39% of millennials attend church weekly. Isn't that something? I don't know what exactly to make of, of all of those data points. One, I find it encouraging that the common narrative that young people just don't want to go to church isn't actually as true as maybe we thought it was. In fact, they didn't study Gen Z in this study, but in a, a separate study that they released a few months ago, uh, they demonstrated that Gen Z, Generation Z, is the most spiritually open generation of all the generations they track and the most eager to learn and hear about Jesus. Isn't that something? That everything we thought we knew about generational trends and religious practice in America is maybe less solid than we thought. Now, our goal, and I need to point this out, our goal is not just to get people to come to church. Like, our goal is not, God doesn't call us to make churchgoers. I can't tell you how often I hear people say, like, I just wish more people need to go to church, or I just wish so-and-so came to church, or I haven't seen you and it's, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to go to church. It's a good thing, okay? So don't hear me say that. But if all we think about is going to church, then we're missing the point. Because Jesus never says, go and make more churchgoers. He says, go and make more, more disciples, more followers of me. It is very possible that someone can follow Jesus and not go to church. It's very possible. I don't recommend it. And actually, most of this service, I'm going to try, in this sermon, I'm going to try to convince you that that's a bad idea, but it's possible. And it's very possible to be a regular churchgoer and to not follow Jesus. That's just as possible. In fact, that's, Jesus has a lot to say to people with that bent at the time. That's what he was, uh, when he was addressing the Pharisees, that's the group that he was addressing. But it brings up a couple of really good questions that we're going to address this morning, and probably the biggest is this, that if church-going and following Jesus are not necessarily one and the same, and if you actually can follow Jesus and not be a church-goer, then why bother in the first place? Remember, we're thinking about beauty and the value that God in his kingdom places on beauty. And we've been noticing over the past several weeks that we seldom arrive at beauty quickly or easily, or efficiently. And let's just name it, a church service is not, by design, quick, or easy, or efficient. The, the pace, we actually intentionally pace things more slowly on Sunday mornings. And other churches approach it differently, and some of this is just my own bent. But we're not trying to rush through this. It's not particularly efficient. It's not easy. There are mornings that you just don't feel like going to church, and you just don't want to go to church. I get that. I feel that way too sometimes, believe it or not. It's not always easy. This, even, even the practice of worshiping together, it often moves slowly and in fits and starts, and it's more indirect than it is 
direct. And you're, you're seldom, you seldom have this choir of angels moment and the scales fell from your eyes because you sang one, this one song or the pastor happened to say this one line in his sermon. It, it works more like water that's just dripping constantly over a rock and just slowly, almost imperceptibly in the moment, it shapes you and it transforms you. And after years and after decades, you realize you're a far different person than you were before. And so much of this can only happen in community with one another. My brother has this little uh, plaque in his home, and it's, it's pretty cheeky, and he, he would be the first to tell you it's pretty cheeky, but this little plaque in his home, and it says, it's better to sit in a boat thinking about God than to sit in church thinking about fishing. <laughs> and part of you is like, you know what? That's right. And it's not going to knock on my, like, my brother loves Jesus, and he's, uh, he worships, he's probably in church right now, like, he, um, and he loves to fish, and it just, and that's his sense of humor. And I laugh every time I see that plaque. Like, it's just objectively funny. And I've actually kind of wrestled through, like, wait a minute. The, okay, so something in that doesn't, it's a joke, obviously, but if you start thinking about it, that doesn't ring true, but Why? Why? If all church is, is sitting around thinking about God, then that plaque is exactly right. It's exactly right. But if something else is happening, something you can't even engineer or manipulate, but it's just a gift that we receive from the Holy Spirit, then maybe there's more to it. That's what we're looking at this morning, and specifically this morning, the beauty of worshiping together, together. This is what the author to the Hebrew, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, but this is what this person is pointing out. Now, Hebrews is probably one of the, the theologically richest books in the New Testament. I mean, you can just, it is deep. I don't understand everything that's going on. And this is Hebrews 10, so the author has spent like 10 chapters before this developing all of this and then they say, therefore, which means in view of everything else I've told you so far, now do this. And there's no way we have time to dig into all of that. I wish we did. I wish I actually understood everything that's going on. But, but just notice what this person says. Therefore, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, they're kind of restating their case. And just, just notice this one thing. God invites us into his presence with confidence. If you, if you were to think about and, and envision, like if you were to actually meet God the Father, you know, sitting on his throne, how would you approach him? A lot of us might answer we might be kind of, our hands might be trembling a little bit. Our knees might be shaking. We might be really worried. And yet the author of Hebrews says you can approach God with confidence. You don't have to worry that he'll be angry at you. You don't have to worry that God will turn you into a little pile of ashes. You don't have to worry. Why? Because he's a God who leads with grace. Paul says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. That's good news. So we can approach God confidently. There's another pastor and author, he just retired, named Tim Keller, and he said once, nobody, nobody would dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water except his daughter. Nobody would dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water except his daughter. That's the kind of access that we have to God. And just like no father would refuse his daughter, probably, a glass of water at 3 a.m., God will not begrudge us or be angry with us for waking him up at 3 a.m., but he longs to provide for us. If God feels that way about you, how come you don't have confidence to approach him? Therefore, let us approach God with confidence, the author to the Hebrews says. And then this person draws out some implications of what that looks like and what that does in us. I just want to walk you through a few of these verses, and, and this is kind of a, a flyover, but, but let's consider what's going on. They say, first, this is verse 22, if you're following along in your Bible, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We've already been talking about this, that we don't have to be afraid of God. We don't have to be afraid of his judgment. In fact, for those who are in Christ, God's judgment is good news. If you're in Christ, you will be, we will all be judged. You will be judged, and you will be found righteous because he has washed you clean, like we talked about earlier when we confessed our sin. Or as the author to the letter to the Hebrews says right here, he, will cleanse, he wants to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. When we worship together, you can tell yourself that over and over, and that does some good. I'm not saying it doesn't do any good. But when we worship together week after week, and every week you hear someone say, either somebody from up here or we all say it together, you hear somebody say, your sin is forgiven. And every week you come and sing the good news of Jesus' incredible love and you hear people around you singing the good news of Jesus' love. And every week we gather and pray together. And every week we hear the scriptures assuring us what happens? Our guilty consciences are cleansed. And with all due respect to my brother, you don't get that sitting in a boat thinking about God. I'm ripping on my brother. He's not here to defend himself, so it's okay. <laughs> Let us draw near to God, the author says, who has sprinkled our hearts and cleansed us from a guilty conscience. And they add another thing that happens. This is verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we professed, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why do you have to hold unswervingly? Because, let's face it, how easy is it to lose hope? It's really stinking easy to lose hope. If you've, um, if you've ever been depressed, and this, this runs the spectrum, so whether this is just kind of this, a vague melancholy or whether, whether you're experiencing severe 
clinical depression or anywhere in between, you know that there's no worse feeling than the loss of hope. And there's only one thing that can make that feeling worse, which is when you you work up the courage to actually be honest about this with somebody, and they kind of nod and listen for a little while, and then they say, like, cheer up. Or they say, ah, you know, look on the bright side of things. Or they say, it'll be okay. Or they say, don't worry so much about it. All these little one-liner platitudes that, and the person, they probably have the best of intentions, But like when you hear that in response to what you just shared, whatever little shred of hope you have is just erased, right? You ever been there? Why? Because that person really wasn't listening to you. They didn't bother to give you the time. They just kind of waited for you to get it all out so that they could give a a quick little fix that they hoped would make things better that actually doesn't make things better so that they can move on and not be worried about all of your burdens anymore. They're trying to fix you quickly, efficiently, and yet it doesn't work that way, does it? When you're depressed, you don't need somebody to tell you, like, get over it. And, 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 and we often say that we, we mean well, like, ah, you just need to get past it. You just need to move on. You need somebody to sit with you and to listen for a long time and to probably not even say all that much. Because you know they can't fix it. And you need somebody who needs to know themselves that they can't fix this and make this go away. But they just need to be with you. That's not efficient. That's not easy. That takes a lot of time. But in that moment, that's what you need. So when you gather on a Sunday morning... And you don't feel like singing, like you don't, you just don't have the song in you, but you hear 70 or 80 people around you singing like we sang this morning, surely, surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. It just gives you a shred of hope that you can hold on to, even if it's just a thread. It gives you something to hold on to. Or when you're together after the service in coffee hour and somebody pulls you aside and says, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to pry and you don't have to share if you don't want to, but I just, I've just noticed you haven't seemed yourself okay. Yourself lately. Is everything okay? And you start to share and they just listen. They don't rush you and they don't try to fix you. And maybe at the end, after, after you know, everybody else has left coffee hour and it's like 45 minutes later and you're thinking, I'm so sorry, I just kept you so long. And they say, no, 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 it's fine. And maybe they say something like, you know, I, I wish I had an answer to that. That's really hard. I don't, even, I don't even know what to tell you. But can we pray together? And right then and there, they pray for you. Like what happens? It, it just gives you a little thread or shred of hope that you had lost. See, those kinds of things can only happen in community. Again, with all due respect to my brother, that doesn't happen sitting in a boat thinking about God. There's one more. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 
uh, there are times that we need guidance and we need direction. You know what spurs are, right? Anybody, if you're a horseback rider, you really know what spurs are, the little spiky things in your shoes. And you use spurs to, I'm not a horseback rider, but this is what I read on Wikipedia. You use spurs to guide and to direct the horse. And here's the thing about spurs. If you use the spurs to hurt the horse, you're doing it wrong. Spurs are sharp, but they're not meant to hurt the horse. They're meant to nudge and get the horse's attention just enough that it can go where it needs to go. There are times that we need to be redirected just enough and encouraged to press on, as the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, toward love and good deeds. That doesn't happen on our own. But it can happen if after service, or maybe this happens in a small group or a Bible study when you've had just a really hard week with your kids and you've been really short with them all week long, You know how this goes, right? Or maybe I'm the only one. Okay, so for people like me and not people like you, but for people like me, you've just been short with your kids all week long and you just had it. You've just had it. And people can kind of tell, you know. And maybe an older saint in the church comes up and says in that gentle way that only she can get away with, hey, I I see you. Hang in there. Hang in there like it's, it's hard. I get it. I know it's hard. I remember feeling that that way when I, when I had my own kids and they were little and now they're grown. And I know I don't understand what it's like to parent a kid now, but I do understand what it was like, you know, 30 years ago. And Press on. And, and I'll tell you that the hard, it's hard, but the hard work of, of practicing patience with your kids is worth it. You see what happens? It's just a gentle, it's not a sharp, it's not a criticism, but just a gentle nudge to keep serving and loving and being patient with your kids. That doesn't happen on our own. Or when your close friend, maybe, whom you've known for decades and who knows exactly how to bring up something hard with you, without accusing you, they're not accusing you, but they just know how to bring stuff up and they just say, you know, I noticed in that meeting last week how you responded to this thing and was there something else going on was there something behind that was there something underneath and they can just listen and process and maybe even gently as the conversation starts to wind down say I wonder if there's a way we can kind of mend this fence all of these things can only happen do you see in community they don't happen on our own Our faith is not meant to be practiced on our own. It's meant to be practiced in community. It's more beautiful that way. It's a lot slower that way. It's a lot less convenient that way. I'm not a fisherman, but I imagine if I were, that there would be a lot of Sunday mornings that I would much rather just put the boat out in the lake than come to church. Like, it's not easy. There is an aspect to it where this is discipline, in the sense of self-discipline. Just like going to the gym. You don't feel like doing it a lot of the time, but you do it because, because you know it makes you better and you know that, that usually when you're, after you've been to the gym, you think, man, I'm, I'm glad I went. The author of the Hebrews sums all of this up in verse 25 when they say this, let us not, this is just blunt and direct, I love this, let us not give up meeting together. 
It's so easy to give up, to want to give up. And so they encourage us. They say, let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. That's a verse that's aimed straight at the heart of pastors. It's so reassuring to know that even 2,000 years ago, people were skipping church all the time, okay? This is not a new thing. And if you're feeling like, I just don't have it in me, you're in 2,000 years worth of good company of people who didn't feel like going to church. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but... Let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, one of the things, maybe the thing that makes the church most beautiful is our insistence on being together. And this gathering is not just a bunch of people sitting around and thinking about God it's not a, we're not just trying to stuff our brains full of information about God. No, there's something happens in community when we are together that is far more beautiful than anything that can possibly happen when we're on our own. Ever since the pandemic started, I've been thinking a lot about this, and maybe you've been thinking this too. But, but consider with me, most of the things we do here on Sunday morning— If it's just about kind of the surface level, getting information and getting a good experience and getting whatever, like you can get such a better version of pretty much everything else we do somewhere else, almost all of it on YouTube. Have you ever thought about this? You can can find a far better sermon than I can ever preach on YouTube. Do you know that? You can find a far shorter sermon than I could ever preach on YouTube. You could, you could find a better and shorter sermon than I could preach on YouTube. You know how much time you could be saving right now? You can get more engaging children's content for your kids on YouTube with all the animation and the lights and the you know, whatever, whatever. Dare I say, you can get better music on YouTube. That, Tamara, that is not a knock on you. You work magic. Like, with what we have, you just do a phenomenal job. But, I mean... You go to YouTube and you find churches and groups that have put videos and it's all like professional, full-time musicians. We just, we can't compete with that. Who wants to compete with that? Not me. You can get more slick. If you're, if, and if you're joining us online, like you can find a, a more slick worship service on YouTube. And you're on YouTube, so you can just click whatever, you know, thumbnail is right there. And, and there it is. And there's better camera angles, and there's more engaging shots, and the sound is better, and there's moving lights. And, like, and on YouTube, it's all free. Is it better? Is it better? I'm not a great estimator of numbers, but there are about 70, maybe even 80 of us in here today who at least this morning insisted, no, that's not better. This is better. Why? Even if we can't express exactly what we're feeling, we, we feel it. We feel it. That this is not about efficiency. It's not about getting as much content as we can. It's not about stuffing our brains with knowledge about God as if that could make us better followers of Jesus or that alone could make us better followers of Jesus. It's not about getting great content we can just consume and be fed. 
There's something more to it. I was listening to an interview recently with a, um, she's a doctoral candidate in the School of Divinity at Duke University. Her name is Caitlin Schess. And she said this, I want to, um, as we start wrapping up, I think she puts to words so well what maybe many of us are already feeling. She says, the whole culture is screaming about how desperate they are, and this is post-COVID, for incarnate, incarnate just means in person, like in the flesh, for incarnate, meaningful connection and relationship. That is the culture's great need right now, even as we're caught in a digital vortex of devices and screens. And here's a moment where the world's great need is immediately met by the church's mission. The very thing we long for, human connection, in an era where human connection has been stripped from us, and even now that we, we're learning to live with COVID and we don't, we're not completely secluded in our homes, we've just accepted digital interaction as a cheap substitute and said like, oh, okay, this is fine. The church, the gathering, even the in-person gathering is perfectly set up as the antidote to that. It's almost as if God knew what he was doing and gave us this gift that we didn't even know that we needed. Now, I will tell you that this, like this Sunday morning, especially the way that we do it at Middle Street, is it's not easy to scale. It's not easy to grow really big in a hurry. I'm frankly not all that, I'm not interested at all in growing big in a hurry. I'm not even sure I'm interested in growing very big. It's hard to program. It's not efficient in that sense of the word. But since when are efficiency and scale the values that we strive for as followers of Jesus? When we gather together, we demonstrate it's an expression that we love God and that we love our neighbors, that we love one another. You know, Jesus said the two greatest commandments, remember? The two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is where we express both of those. And since when is love efficient or scalable? You see? What if instead of pursuing efficiency and scale and utility and optimization, what if we pursue what is lovely and what is beautiful instead? That was Jesus' approach. Jesus didn't pursue scale. He, he, could have, he could have gathered thousands of followers. He picked 12. In fact, Jesus intentionally taught teachings that were so hard that people left him, and he knew that they would leave. He wasn't trying to appeal to the masses. He was going for something more durable and more beautiful. And even in the fact that Jesus came to be with us, he didn't sit kind of at a distance and offer advice for us to follow so that we could fix things ourselves, but, but he came and he put on the uniform and he got dirt under his fingernails and he came to be with us in the flesh in person. So our commitment to be a community, a family, in person, in the flesh, as much as we can, and I, I know that 
I'm not knocking, especially doing that. We're going to keep doing services online. And I know for those of you who are online, I know a lot of you have really good reasons. Like you can't because of your immune systems or your age or you just can't get out of the house. I'm not knocking that. But our commitment to be a, a community in the flesh of getting dirt under our fingernails of doing the hard work of reconciliation and redemption is an echo of Jesus who did the hard work of reconciliation and redemption. He did it at a terrific expense. It wasn't cheap. It cost him his life. And so he invites us into his life to say, be a community of people just like who bear witness to me, who bear witness to the cross, to remind one another that I am gracious, that I've come to cleanse you from your guilt. I've come that you might hold on to the hope that you profess and not lose hope. I've come that you might have a life. He calls us in that sense to be a beautiful gathering. Let's pray together. Lord, teach us what it means to be a beautiful gathering. Teach us what it means to commit, even when we don't feel like it, not out of a sense of dull duty, but, but, but out of a longing for beauty. Teach us what it means to be so infatuated with Jesus and so moved by his sacrificial love that even in our weekly, ordinary gatherings, in our singing together and our praying together and our listening together and our encouragement together, that we would become more and more like you and that the church, the global church and this church, would become deeper and more beautiful expressions of your kingdom. We ask this through Christ our Lord.